Okay, so do you have your Bibles open to Romans 2? And then let's just pray before we get started. Lord, we read that your word is alive and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, that it is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, and to do what is right. Lord, I am small, but that is okay because you are big. So I pray that I would decrease so that you would increase. Keep me sensitive to your leading. And thank you, Lord, for the promise of your presence with us today. So do your work in the hearts of each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have to say that this um, has not been an easy chapter for me because there has been so much here we could spend hours and hours. And I've probably read it a hundred times in so many different versions, and um, it's spoken very deeply to me these last couple of months. Do you ever find that there are places where you hear God louder than others? I do. I find three very specific places, my little quiet time area in my house where I meet with him every morning, in the shower, a lot in the shower, a lot. I need to get one of those signs, you know, the waterproof one, so I can write everything he tells me down. But um, in my quiet time, in the shower, and when I drive, I hear him, and I've heard him a lot lately when I drive, because I drive a lot. Most of you probably don't know, I don't live right here in Vista. I live in the foothills of Palomar Mountain. And driving is very different in the mountains than it is in the city. When you guys drive in the city, you drive down a straight line, you turn a corner, you drive down a straight line, you turn a corner. But out where I live, the roads go up and down and back and forth. And if you get in a rhythm, it's kind of like driving on a slalom. And... um, I've been really comfortable on these roads because I've been on them my whole life. But that can also cause me a little bit of grief. For example, I could be confidently driving along, and then I'll get behind someone who is not as confident, who doesn't put the same amount of pressure on the gas pedal as I would like them to. And out of my mouth comes, what is wrong with you? And then I can attach a label to them to explain why they are driving that way, in my opinion. That said, on another day, I can be driving along, sun shining, it's a beautiful day, birds are singing, worship music's playing, I'm in no hurry, and suddenly, behind me, on my back end, motorcycles. And they are back and forth and swerving around, trying to get around me. And out of my mouth comes, excuse me, what is wrong with you? That's so rude. Several years ago, I was driving home from Mexico, which was an awful experience. I'd been down there for several weeks. And um, it's a really long drive home from where I was coming from. And so I kept getting behind cars that were not driving as fast as I wanted them to. And I was getting so irritated, and my blood pressure was rising, and I kept saying, what is wrong with you? Can you just go a little bit faster? And so I'd get really close to their back end, and they'd pull over, and so I'd go around them, and I did this for several cars. 
Okay, I did this for a lot of cars. And um, so I would just do that. I'd go get behind them, and they'd, and, I'd, and then that next one, they'd, well, I did that. And then the next person in front of me was a sheriff. And I certainly wasn't going to push him out of, the, out of the way. But apparently, I drove a little bit closer to his back end than he wanted me to. And after a while, he, he, he delayed. He waited a while. But after a while, he pulled over. And I went around him. And he went behind me. And lights went on. And sirens went on. I'm like, are you kidding me? Oh, so I drove for a little bit because there's no place to pull over. And I finally found, pulled over. And it was literally at the bottom of our driveway. And, and so the sheriff got out, and he came, and we're going through the whole um, license and registration. Well, actually, I argued with him at first, because he said, do you know you were tailgating me? And I said, no, I wasn't. <laughs> that did not go over very well. So, but anyways, um, so we're sitting there talking, and then um, the cars that we had left in the dust, guess what? They start driving by, and guess what? They are honking their horns in full approval of seeing me pulled over. They're driving by. You can just take, see the, the, the finger. You, you go get her, Sheriff. You could, I knew that's what they were doing. Thing is, as I was doing to them the very thing that I was accusing and condemning the motorcycles of doing to me. In chapter 1, Paul focused on those who live as if there were no God. Those who live in a lifestyle that according to verse 18 of chapter 1, upon who the wrath of God is revealed. And we read this catalog of corruption, as one commentator puts it. Starting with idolatry, he moves to sexual perversion and then adds this laundry list of other sins. Let's go back quickly and review, starting in verse 29. And I'll be in the uh, New American Standard for most of today. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That is quite a list. And we can read through it and we can easily assume that it's for other people. Maybe some names come to mind that you know who would fit in there. And one could think, go get them, Paul. But Paul's not done. Now, he turns his attention to the moral, self-righteous legalist and the religious and confronts being judgmental and hypocritical. Our lesson called it religious snobbery. Paul speaks from experience. Remember, this is his background. He was a zealous Pharisee. So he understands what excuses are going to be coming up. Verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. First, please understand that we're not talking about righteous judgment. This is not evaluating right from wrong. We're called to do that. This is talking about being judgmental with condemnation, and there is a big difference. The second thing is, I hope you noticed in the lesson, I thought this was so cool because I didn't know it before, the type of argument Paul uses is called a diatribe. 
It is a well-known way of teaching truth in which the writer engages in debate with imaginary opponents, asking them questions and answering their supposed objections. It's like if you were teaching a lesson and um, suddenly you're preparing for the lesson and suddenly you think someone's going to come back and argue with me about X, Y, or Z. So you start um, addressing their argument in your head. That's what Paul's doing here. So our lesson says we get to listen in while Paul exposes and corrects the wrong assumptions, assumptions of any self-righteous person. In this case, the one who assumes that being a good Jew is what makes them righteous. So if we bring that closer to home, it's the one who says, I'm a good guy. I help people in need. I give to the guy on the street corner. I hardly ever drink. I know it's wrong to gossip, but I don't do it very often, and I haven't killed anybody. I'm a decent person. I'm not like them. And it can be easy for a moral person to compare and look down on those in that list and label them and put them in categories. We've all been there um, I, at one time or another. We've probably all said, thank you, God. Thank you, I am not like them. I don't think I'm alone in this. But I also think that most of us would not um, call ourselves outright judgmental. But if we're honest, we'd have to admit that we probably judge a lot more than we think we do. I noticed that I do. It's been on my mind a lot the last couple of months. I ran in doing the study, I ran across a story about a pastor who did not think he was judgmental. But just in case he was wrong, he kept track of every time he passed judgment for a week, and this is what he discovered. And I quote, I watch the news and condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Well, I'm already guilty of that one. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car and drive and find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long because, look people, it says 10 items or less, and I count more than that in three of your baskets. What is wrong with you all? And why can't that teenage checker, what is she wearing? Just focus on her work so we can get out of here. I laughed at that at first when I read it, and I thought, and then I thought, ouch, I can relate to every single one of those, and sometimes in the same day. The problem is that we can set up different standards for our life, for us and then for other people, and then we compare ourselves to them making ourselves the standard, and they don't measure up so that we look good and we feel good. My mother was very creative. She had a way of seeing things and then drawing it so that you knew what it is she was drawing. But God didn't turn that part of my brain on, and so I draw out stick figures at best. And even then, you probably won't have a clue as to what I'm drawing. But if you put my stick figures next to my five-year-old grandson, my stick figures look pretty good. But next to my mom, they fall short. And next to a Monet, we both fall far short. Because we can always find someone who we are doing better than. And we can think, 
it's fine. I'm good. And we get a little bit puffed up. But the problem is we're the wrong standard. And our standard is not good enough. There's not a big difference between us and other people. But we, when we compare to ourselves to the real standard, which is Jesus, there is a huge gap. And we will fall short every time. Paul says, the one who judges is without excuse. And have you ever noticed that it's a lot easier to see other people's sin but not our own? We tend to have these blinders on when it comes to our own sin. And so often what we're pointing out in other people is the same thing that we're struggling with. And when we judge them, we tend to judge them a little harsher than we do ourselves. Perfect example in scripture is David and Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. You know the story in 2 Samuel um, 11 and 12. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant, so he needs to cover it up. He devises a plan to make sure Uriah sleeps with her, and that doesn't work. So David has him murdered by putting him in the battlefront to make sure he's killed. He knows he's sinned. David knows he's sinned, but he keeps quiet. Then Nathan the prophet comes along and confronts him through the story of the rich man who stole the poor man's only lamb to feed his guests. And what does David say? In chapter 12, verse 5, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan comes back with, You are the man. Guilty. You may not have done those exact sins, but your sin condemns you as much as theirs does. And Paul makes it clear that all sin will be judged and no one will get away with it. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things... And do the same thing yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? The answer to that is no. Verse 6 says, He will render to every man according to his deeds. And there will be no secrets because he sees the heart. He sees what's going on on the inside where no one else can see. Hebrews 4.13 says, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who, to whom we must give account. First Samuel 6, 7, 16, 7, God sees not as the man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jeremiah seventeen ten. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And there are so many more. 1 Kings 8.39, 1 Chronicles 28.9, and in the handout you have, I've listed those for you. We will stand before him and give an account. I don't know about you, but that causes me to sit up and pay attention because we can tend to forget that. And we go about our daily life and we drop a word of judgment here or give someone a haughty look of disapproval there. But his judgment is inescapable. It is right. And it is impartial, unlike ours. We can't judge simply because we're not qualified to. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point has become guilty of all. That alone disqualifies us. 
I am acquainted <clears throat> with a couple of federal judges. And they didn't just wake up one day in their life and say, I think I'm going to be a judge today. They had to go through steps to be qualified. They had to go to college, and then they had to get their Juris Doctorate degree, and then they had to be appointed, and then they had to go through judgeship training. Then they were qualified to be a judge. I am not a federal judge. I don't get to wear a black robe or sit in his seat or bang his gavel, although I would love to at least once. But I'll get to do that. I'm not qualified to do his job. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Secondly, we don't have all the facts. I mean, haven't you assumed something about someone only to find out later you were wrong? Uh, When I was growing up, my mom listened to Chuck Swindoll. She loved him and listened to him every day. And so uh, I did as well. And he tells of this teaching. If you ever heard Chuck Swindoll for a long time, you've probably heard this. He tells of a time when he was teaching at a Bible conference. And the first night of the conference, he met this couple. They seemed really happy to be there. But as the week went by, he noticed, because they sat up near the front, he noticed that about 10 minutes into his message, the husband would be clocked off, just fast asleep. And uh, that irritated him so much that by the end of the conference, he was absolutely convinced that this man was a carnal Christian and that he was only there to please his wife. After the conference was done, the wife came up to him and uh, to speak with him afterwards, and she said... Um, mentioned that her husband had terminal cancer. And she said, she goes, we attended this conference mainly at his request because it was his final wish to be here even though his pain medication made him drowsy. Chuck didn't have all the facts. He made an assumption based only on what he saw. Now, ladies, we live in a broken world. I mean, we go out and we see brokenness everywhere, but we only see part of the story. We don't often get to go deep into the lives of other people. We see the outside. We see the brokenness. We see their bad choices. We see the damage that they're doing, and it's easy to make an assumption based on what we see. We see a woman struggling with drinking, but not the violence she lives with at home. We see a girl who is promiscuous or dresses provocatively, but not her sexual abuse. We can see someone who is arrogant, but we don't hear the condemning voice that is so loud in their heads. We don't see the thorn in the foot of one who limps. But God sees it which is what makes him the only one who can render judgment. And it will be based on truth, not on incomplete, inaccurate, or circumstantial evidence. Back to my driving story. The sheriff did not give me a ticket. I knew I was guilty. I deserved a ticket, and he would have been right in giving me one. And the people driving by honking, they just were not helpful. But what they didn't know, the information they didn't have, is that I wasn't feeling well. And I had reason to get home quickly. And as I explained that to the sheriff, he spoke kindly to me, and he showed me grace. 
Nietzsche said, try to remember that the slower drivers come up from the flatlands and they are not as comfortable driving up here as you and I are. So be patient with them. In essence, show them the same grace that I have shown you. And I was truly grateful. I didn't take it lightly and it compelled me to want to try and drive differently in the future and to live up to what he was asking of me. Verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do you not know? Do you not consider? Do you not realize this? The New King James says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Riches, how great, how valuable it is. His kindness, his goodness. Have you ever thought about what that means, his goodness? The Bible defines God's goodness in two ways. One has to do with his character, and one, the other one focuses on his actions. And um, Psalms 119.68 captures both when it says of God, you are good, and you do what is good. When Moses pleaded with God, he said, please show me your glory. He was asking God, show me who you really are. Show me as much as I can stand, Lord. And what did God show him? In Exodus thirty-three nineteen, God showed him his goodness. I myself will make my goodness pass before you. John MacArthur points out that we can't talk about the goodness of God without talking about sin and judgment because they're all bound up together. He says, when we see our sinfulness and rebellion against God, when we see our hypocrisy in condemning others for committing the same wrath-deserving sins, then we can also marvel at God's goodness in patiently and tolerantly withholding the wrath that we deserve. That's what leads us to repentance. He leads us. He allures us. He draws us in. Forbearance is tolerance to hold back. It's a delay. It's like a stay of execution. Patience is long-suffering, a slowness to anger, a slowness to the punishment of sin. Aren't you glad God didn't take us out at the moment we sin? I am, because I'd be long gone. Most of us would be. All of us would be. God could have struck David down as soon as he committed adultery. Or earlier when he was watching Bathsheba from his rooftop. Or as soon as he put the order in that caused Uriah's death. But God didn't step in in any of those times. He called it sin in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11. says the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. But he waited. He delayed. He held back. All through Bathsheba's pregnancy and the birth of the child, then, chapter 12, verse 1, then the Lord sent Nathan to David and confronted his sin. And I love David's response. I have sinned. There's his confession. And repentance. We see that repentance in Psalms 51 where David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's what God wants. 
changing of our, of our mind, a turning from sin and not intending to go back there again. And towards him, he leads us in that direction, but he doesn't force us. A.W. Tozer says, God will take nine steps toward us, but he will not take the tenth. He will not do our repenting for us. In his sovereignty, he's given us that choice. And as we come to understand the true intent of his patience, and we lay a hold of it for ourselves, then we in turn live in such a way that reflects that kindness and, our pa- and that patience, which are fruits of the Spirit, to those in our broken world who do not know, who do not consider his kindness and his goodness. And to love them like crazy, even if we don't agree with them, even if they don't come to repentance as quickly as we would like, if at all. My best friend and I have been best friends since we were 13 years old, 47 years. And when we first met, she didn't like me. She didn't, because on Wednesday night, I'd go to church, and she'd stay home and do homework, and then I'd copy her homework on Thursday morning. And she'd get so mad at me, and she complained to her parents about me, that Catherine, rah, 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 chipping her teeth away about me. But by the end of the year, we were best friends. And um, later on, a few years later, as a girl of 16, and the many years that followed, when my life looked like chapter one, my life was chapter one. Most of my Christian friends faded away. She didn't. She just kept loving me. And she kept loving me. And she was patient. She was patient. (laughs) But she never held back from speaking the truth. And I watched her. She wasn't perfect. But she loved me back to Jesus. And she, <clears throat> outside of my mother, was the only Jesus I saw for many years. We love people back to God with compassion and kindness and patience and mercy, remembering our own shortcomings first, getting that plank out, speaking the truth when we need to, remembering where we were before Jesus was in our life, and seeing them as one who Jesus loves as desperately as he loves you. They are aching for it. Genuine love and truth. But when they see us as being judgmental and creating categories of us and them or saying one thing but living another, it doesn't draw them to Jesus, but it damages God's name And the world can look at us and they can form an opinion about God. Verse 24 of Romans 2, it says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I ran across this article on the internet just a couple of days ago in the Huff Post. I don't know what that is. I don't read it, but this popped up. It says, quote, Christianity in America or should I say the great, single greatest cause of atheism today? You know who I'm talking about, right? The type of people who acknowledge Jesus with their words and deny him through their lifestyle. Ladies, how we live matters. I don't ever want someone to think badly of God because of something I'm doing or how I'm acting. I was so 
glad in that driving experience that my car did not have a fish on it. Whether I had reason to drive that way or not, all they would have seen was the fish. This was um, driven home to me many, many years ago when um, I was playing hokey pokey with God. I had one foot in this life and I had one foot in this life and um, I wasn't really fully committed to either one. And I have a history of drug abuse. And the last time I ever did it, I was at this table and it was all laid out, our drugs of choice. And the person I was with asked me, so what do you believe about Jesus? I don't even know where that came from. And I thought, ouch. And it pierced me to my heart. And I had a very clear sense at that moment that my lifestyle was damaging God's name in the sight of others. And I was so embarrassed. And I thought, what a hypocrite I am. That these two lives are incompatible. That may be a little of an extreme example, but it makes the point Is your life compatible with your faith? Or are there inconsistencies? Not talking about being perfect. We don't get perfection until we get to heaven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Just before I, when I was finishing this up, and I was um, kind of talking through this with my husband Tom, and, and he said, you know, speaking of his dear, dear friend and mentor, Tony Salvato, he said, Tony never said the words, but the way he lived his life caused me to want to imitate him. Tony's life, the conduct of his life said, follow me. Follow my example in speech. Follow the way I live my life, my conduct. Does your unspoken life say that? If not, why? What are you doing that needs to change? Where do you need to take that tenth step? Because God's already taken nine, and he's just holding out his hand and saying, come with me. I'll help you. We can't preach cream, but live skim milk. I didn't think that up. If people know or even think that you're a Christian, you can be sure they are watching you. What does your unspoken life say? The question, Greg Laurie says, isn't if you fall into hypocrisy. We all do. It's part of being a Christian in a fallen world. The question is, are you a hypocrite? It's not, do you fall into making a judgment about somebody? Are you holding a gavel? Let's be intentional to live our lives, not for the praise of men, that comes from the external, but for praise from God, which comes from the internal, from a transformed heart. That's where the gospel comes in. The Jews were depending on their physical circumcision to be right with God. But it's not the knife against the skin, as the message puts it. It's the mark of God on your heart. A cutting away of the sins of the flesh. A work that is done in us by the Holy Spirit when we sincerely place our faith in the finished work of Jesus. Because none of this 
means anything without that. I could stand up here all day long and tell you not to judge or why you shouldn't be hypocritical and to love others. But without the power of Jesus in our lives, it's like telling someone who's hungry to stop being hungry without feeding them. It's their condition that has to change. And if the condition of our heart doesn't change, which is the real problem in the first place, we're not going to get different results by just trying harder. Matthew 15, 18, and James 2, 18 tell us that who we are determines what we do, and what we do is a reflection of who we are. Paul, in this chapter, paints a bleak picture here, but he's laying the groundwork for the theme of the whole book. It's not to condemn us. It's not just to show us that we're sinners. That's a given. But it's to get rid of any of our arguments to remind us that there are consequences for sin, God's judgment is certain, and that we are without excuse. Because the bottom line is, we're all in the same boat of guilty, and we all need a Savior. And he's going to explain that power of God to save us. That's the good news. That's the good news of Jesus. Because he is the only answer to our broken world. Right? Okay, let's pray. Father, you say that your word that goes out from your mouth will not return empty, but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. So, Lord, we ask you today to do your work in each individual heart as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.